Well, it's a new year. According to the Gregorian calendar, at least, uh, I don't know, uh, we're, we're in a new year. And seeing as we're not in the, in the thick of a teaching series of this really important gift and invitation that sits right at the heart of, um, of what it means to be the people of God, to be people who, who know God and who want to know God and who want to love him. So over the break, over summer, my mind, for some reason, just kept returning to this very short little phrase in Deuteronomy, this two-word phrase, which Moses spoke during his final address to the Israelites. This is just before he is passing on the baton to, to Joshua. So it's his kind of final words, his final charge to the Israelites. And um, there's something about people's last words. You know, they have a certain clarity about them. They have a certain sort of urgency as well, often you know, rescue from Egypt, and he reminds them of the covenant and the commandments. And then right towards the end of the sermon, Moses presents these two future scenarios. He says, you know, these are two directions that that this could all go. Um, These two futures sit in front of Israel right now as they're poised to enter the promised land. And um, he presents these two pictures in very vivid and quite intense language. And in the first picture, he paints this picture of, of life in full abundance, this picture of deep peace, of shalom, of all things being um, going well and all things flourishing. This picture, socioeconomic system for supporting um, society and these practices of worship and these rhythms of worship, he presents this picture of what it would be like if Israel lived that way. And um, like I say, in this picture, Israel is flourishing um, and the land and their society reflect something like the Garden of Eden. And then he presents a second picture, um, which is almost the complete opposite, the, the mirror image, the, which is this really quite dreadful vision of, of the worst kind of existence that Israel could imagine. Um, Israel back in slavery, Israel exiled. So then having, having evoked these two images for, for Israel, um, which lay before them, Moses encourages them to live lives that are faithful and live lives that courageously hold to God's way. And this is, this is what he says. I'll just read it out for us. Talking about all of this, about these two ways. He says, Now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask, Who will ascend into heaven and get, get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea, so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us, so that we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witness against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life, so that you and your children may live, 
and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life. So those are the words that were in my head. Choose life, those, that little phrase. This, as I started the year, it just kind of kept cropping up for me. Choose life. Um, they were Moses' words to Israel, but I think, you know, I believe they're also God's words to us um, as we contemplate what 2024 um, might mean for us as a church and as an individual. What would it mean to choose life, to start the year um, with that in mind, that phrase? And, you know, in the very beginning of the, the passage, of um, this passage, Moses, Moses um, almost heads off this, this temptation that the Israelites might have to, dis, you know, to despair and think that this is all impossible, this is too hard. Um, he reminds them that you know, this, this way which he's presenting them, this God's way, um, is not sort of a hopelessly idealistic way. It's not an impossible dream that no one could ever follow. Um, and it's not something that's so complex that it requires a whole lot of intermediaries and experts to explain it and contextualize it and interpret it for them. He's saying, this is at hand. This is within your reach. This is right here. Um, already in your mouth to speak it. Already in your heart to obey it. And if you kind of zoom out a little bit from this passage in Deuteronomy, just a little, you see that... Um, you know, whether Moses has had a glimpse of the future or whether he's just been living with the Israelites for 40 years so he knows exactly what they're like, um, he kind of knows what's going to happen. He, he, he has a good sense of what way they're going to choose, um, that they're not going to follow God's way. So he says, you know, um, you can see it in his words when he says when rather than if, but he says when all these blessings and curses I've set before you come on you and you take them to heart, um, whatever the Lord your God uh, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord and obey Him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you, and gather you again from all the nations where He scattered you. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. So there's this interesting text that was written by some rabbis in the 8th or 9th century um, in Europe, and it, they tell us sort of fanciful story of, uh, like a retelling of the story of creation. And in their colourful, imaginative version, um, the rabbis imagined thinking, you know, picturing God, thinking about, I'm going to make something, I'm going to create. And so, like an architect, he lays out his blueprints for all of creation. And he begins to, to make designs for creation. He begins to draw and, and, and begins to construct creation. But every time he gets close to it being completed, something's missing and it all collapses, it all falls apart. So something in, the, in God's design is missing. Something was making this unstable. And the rabbis um, concluded it wasn't until God created repentance that the whole of creation, the whole order of creation could finally be sustained and could finally stand. 
And like that's not biblical, it's just a story, it's a sort of an imagination. But it does a good job, I think, of, of illuminating um, something foundational about repentance, about uh, this, the importance of, of repentance um, for the ongoing health of a community. These rabbis, like Moses, um, they understood that people are inevitably not going to be able to live into life. They're always going to fail. They also understood that these little failures um, of the people, despite seeming like insignificant, they were like hairline fractures in a building material. They were like these tiny little fractures which would then expand until the whole universe couldn't hold together and would fall apart. So both this fanciful story um, and you know the whole Jewish and Christian tradition, you know, in our own story, reiterates that um, that our our personal failure, our, our our inability to live live into life, is always more than just personal. It always has a it always has an effect on those around us. It doesn't just purely affect us. It affects our sense of self. It affects our relationship to God and the way we want to be with God or talk to God, our desire for intimacy with God, and it affects our relationships to the people around us. And because of that, given enough time, it begins to affect everything, it begins to affect the whole of creation and everyone. So all of this, I think, you know, um, gives our little personal failures a, a kind of gravity, um, or to use the, the more weighty language of Scripture, um, it's describing um, personal failures as sin. So I think that's why it makes sense, you know, uh, of these, this strange story from the rabbis about why creation and why all of life needs to have some opportunity for repentance in order for it to stay standing, in order for it, in order for it to, to endure. Now talking and thinking about sin can feel quite heavy. It can feel like quite a, a heavy thing to, to talk about. Um, Repentance can feel an uncomfortable topic to talk about. I think, you know, speaking for myself, um, I'm very prone to avoidance when it comes to these things. We probably all are, if we're honest. Um, and equally, I think we probably could be a bit obsessed with sin, or a bit fixated on sin in an unhealthy way. I think probably more often we get the worst of both. <laughs> we get uh, avoidance and obsession. Um, we end up doing both at the same time, kind of, disassociating from our own failings and also um, internalizing them uh, as, a, as a narrative. So going back to our passage, again, we see how Moses is reminding him, you know, reminding the people of Israel that even in the depth of exile, even when they're as far away from God as they can be, in the farest country, in the distant land, returning to God is not too hard. It's not beyond them, um, but rather it's very close. It's, it's, it's so close that it's at hand, so close that we can return to God at any place and at any time and at any moment. And this return always begins with, with confession, naming, naming our, um, our failings and those things which have taken control of us. And despite, again, like that, that word confession might feel a bit frightening, it might produce a kind of natural hesitation in us, but giving language to our failings actually leads us to freedom and to life. So just as Jesus asked the demons when he was casting them out, he often would ask for their name before casting them out. Naming, naming sin is a way of uh, understanding it 
and bringing it to God as a way of marking it and drawing boundaries around it rather than leaving it undefined and rather than having it as an invisible thing which is constantly tripping us up. We can begin to name things and begin to bring them to God. And this, this practice of confession doesn't need to be a warped thing. It doesn't need to be um, a morbid self-obsession, um, which in itself is just another form of pride. Confession is a, is a way of life, a way of living openly before God. It may require some stillness. It may require some quieting, um, enough at least to know what's going on inside. I'm always amazed at myself when, when I have something going on uh, with my, you know, something going on inside, I can be very reactive when I'm with my kids. I can sort of, they can come to me and all of a sudden I'll like way over proportionally get annoyed and it's often because there's something which I haven't figured out, there's something which I haven't named, which I haven't um, understood and that expresses itself in some kind of weird way. Um, so having time to, to be still, uh, having time to give language to those things is really healthy. Um, to disentangle my own anxieties and my own guilts uh, makes me a much less reactive person. So it, it requires some stillness, some, some pause, some solitude, I think, um, or at least some ways of getting, getting um, close to our, our own tangled thoughts and feelings. And summertime's a good time for it, where there's more space, where there's more margins, where we can actually slow down and, um, and begin to feel again, begin to feel the things which are going on inside of us. It's funny, I, whenever I go on holiday, I, I often, the first few days, feel really grouchy. And I think it's because I've carried all this stuff with me all year, and suddenly I can relax and it all just comes out. And it's probably quite perplexing to the people around me. It's like, you're finally on holiday, I'm like, ah. You know, just kind of in a mood. Uh, why are you like this? But I think it's because so much of our lives are lived in this quite frenetic way. Taking time to um, sift and to explore what's going on is, is really helpful. Um, but it's not just making a, a you know a moral inventory of, of all the bad things, of your own failings. You know, it may involve that, but you know, I think at best confession moves beyond that. It moves beyond just naming wrongdoings. And it moves towards an act of framing our lives in a certain way, as, as a, you know, in an open way, like I'm saying, living a life that's open before God and open before ourselves and open before others, accepting the truth of our lives. This is who I am at the moment. This is what's going on for me. It's a really healthy way to live. It's almost like living in a constant state of confession rather than trying to push things down and sweep things away. Um, so it's a way of life rather than a practice. But confession isn't the same thing as repentance. They're connected, but they're not the same. I think repentance encompasses confession, but it goes beyond it. In a way, confession looks back. It looks back to the things which have happened, back to the things which we've said or the things which we've not said. Confession names those things, helps us to name those things. But repentance is about turning. It's about turning around and moving in a different direction. It's about charting a new course. Um, and when Jesus first appears in Mark's gospel narrative, that's his first instruction. It's a lot like Moses's last instruction. Moses says, choose life, and Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. It's sort of the same thing. Return to God. Choose life. 
Or to put it in a slightly different tense, um, live a life of continual returning to God, continual return to God, and continual orientation towards life. I think that would be a good resolution, if any, a good way to live at the beginning of the year, to say, I'm going to choose life. I'm going to choose to live a life that's open before God and open before myself. And I'm going to live a life of continual return to God. Whenever we stray, just return. It's never, you're never too far to return. But I hear you asking, is it realistic? Um, does, it, you know, does it actually accurately reflect uh, our ability to do what's right after we've failed? Like, is it just more hard work? Is it just more self-improvement? To do what's right, is that just another version of keep going, keep gritting your teeth and trying? Um, is it just another New Year's resolution? And if so, is it like all the other ones that kind of slip off the radar? Like, I don't think Moses was naive to this. I think Moses knew the people pretty well. He knew what they were like. He recognized that, you know, very close to the human heart, there was this inclination away from life, an orientation away from life towards, towards death. Um, so he understood that, and so does Scripture. But we we also know that you know God hasn't left us alone to figure this all out. He hasn't He hasn't created us as these flawed beings who have to fix ourselves. He knows us, and He's intimately acquainted with us. He knows what it means to be human, to be frail like us. He knows it deeply and thoroughly. When Jesus said, uh, "Repent and believe." which is the equivalent of choose life, he wasn't just offering some kind of empty promise, but instead, like Moses, he was offering a concrete life, a pattern, a way of life that can be lived. And he lived it. Jesus lived the life that he preached, and he promised to empower us to live that life as well, to live it with him. We still wait, you know, we still wait with a, a, a expectation of fuller, deeper healing um, that, that God will bring, the full and thorough healing of our hearts. We still yearn for that. We still recognize that that's not fully here yet, but it's begun. It's begun in Christ, like, like Johnny was saying. So that's the, in a sense, we, because we live in this, tension between the now and the not yet because we have um, hearts which are connected to Christ, which are in Christ, but there's also a part of us which is still being healed and being redeemed. We, we're we charged to do, to, to, to continually be a people who live in repentance. Um, and we, and to continually lean on God and ask God for his help. So here's... Um, I guess here's my challenge to us this morning, just to close. And I certainly include myself in this. Let's not be passive with the options before us, with the options which God has put before us. Let's not be passive, and may I not be passive with this, but let this darkness of these pictures and these words kind of trouble us and inspire us at the start of this year. This is, again, what... Bible says, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. 
Now, choose life. So that you and your children may live, and you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. Now some questions, a little bit of homework, um, or maybe we could do a little bit of chatting now because we've got about 10 minutes on my clock. I thought it would be good to chat with your neighbour or uh, someone you feel comfortable with through some of these questions. So it's all good to listen to someone talk about it, but what would it look like for you personally, for you, to choose life this year? Um, and maybe a way of drilling into that question is, where do you sense um, a challenge to turn away from things which lead to death? Um, things which, which lead to a diminishment of the life that wants to live in you. You probably know what those things are. So where do you sense a, a challenge to turn away from those things? And where do you sense an invitation to, to turn towards life? Or the things that help you to love God? Um, the things which help you to hear God's voice and to hold fast to him. So that's, that's the first big question, really. Um, and then the second one is, you know, thinking practically, what do you think you're going to need this year to, to help you choose life this year? What are going to be some of the resources that you're going to need? Um, it might be connecting with other people. It might be um, a course. It might be whatever. But what is it? What, you, what, what is it for you that's going to help you to choose life this year? And then finally, to pray for each other, to, to bless what's been said. Now, it's, um, you can share as deeply as you feel comfortably. Uh, like, if you, if you are new here, this might feel rather in, intense. Um, feel free to opt out as well. But I think it would be really good to, to spend just a little bit of time, maybe, maybe 10 minutes just as a close to our gathering today, to have these conversations with each other and to pray for each other and encourage each other.